So I wonder where you turn when your life, when it hits rock bottom, when the waves of this world, when they feel like they're just pounding you to an oblivion. Where do you go to breathe? Where do you look for deliverance, for escape? Where do you go for just the slightest ray of hope? You know, John Newton was born to a godly mother who taught him to pray. She taught him to memorize scriptures. She taught him the catechisms. She put all of that into his soul, but she died when he was seven. And so he was sent off to live with his seafaring father. And there on the seas, he abandoned much of that upbringing. He lived without really any sense of restraint. He rebelled against the discipline he had received. He had his first job and he lost that due to insubordination and due to obstinacy. He was actually as a teen press ganged into the, into the British Royal Navy, but there again, he didn't appreciate the discipline. He deserted only to be caught shortly thereafter and he was flogged and then he himself was discharged to his slave ship for five years. Assuming now that he was on the ship for five years that he had surely lost the love of his life there in London. And yet, in the midst of all that, he remained arrogant. He remained insubordinate. And in his grief, he said he just lived with utter moral abandon. He said, quote, I sinned with a high hand. I made it my study to even tempt and to seduce others. In other words, he found great delight, in fact, in luring unsuspecting Christians into his own life, of dissipation into his own life of corruption. And one of those men was a man by the name of Job Lewis. And after Newton sort of deconverted, if you will, Job Lewis, Job, he drank, he fought, he lived in wanton, like just reckless abandon in his own life. It was a licentious life. And due to that life, that life that Newton had led him into, he actually developed a fever and he began to die. And there, in his last dying days, really in despair and in rage, Lewis, he cried out, screaming that he was going to hell and yet unable and unwilling, even in that moment, to seek God's mercy. Now, the sight of all this, coming to the realization of what he had done, John Newton, how he would ruin souls, how he would really lost the love of his life, He got to the point where he just wanted to take his own life. He wanted to take his own life. Convinced there was nothing that God could possibly do for him, given how he had lived his life. And he had passed, he assumed, that point of no return. A sinner too far gone, even for the grace of God. And so it was on a a trip across the Atlantic, back toward London, that his vessel ran headlong into a, a horrible storm. The sails were torn. The ship was slowly just splintering into a million pieces. The hole down below was filling with water. Newton literally, in his exhaustion, I think this 10 days or so into the storm, he just tied himself to the helm of the ship, too exhausted to pump. And there he reflected on his life which seemed his life as ruined and as wrecked as the battered ship that he was trying to steer through that storm. And for the first time in nearly a decade, Newton began to pray. He said, quote, I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and possibly call him father. My prayer for mercy was like the simple, mournful cry of the ravens. For a man who had sinned so greatly, so malevolently, would that flimsy, would that half-hearted, whispered prayer uttered through lips of doubt and despair, would God even hear that prayer of John Newton? Could that prayer possibly be enough for him? Does God even hear such prayers like that? Does he respond to the prayers of men like this? Would God dare respond to Newton's? Because you see, nearly every religion teaches 
that we can approach God only once we've gotten our act all together. Right? We've got to wash up, we've got to clean up, we've got to button up, and then we assume we can come up and we can commune and possibly ask God for something. That's how most religions talk about what it means to approach God and how to make ourselves right with God. Only then in such confidence can we come. Friend, maybe that's what you think. But is that what the Bible teaches? Would God condescend to hear the prayers of a man like John Newton? Does he condescend to hear even yours? Friends, that's what we're going to be thinking about as we return to our our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. So let me invite you to turn there now if you have a Bible. Uh, In this COVID sort of touch-free season when we don't have Bibles and the seatbacks before you, we do provide the text of the sermon. It should be there in the worship guide. If you grab one of those, you can find it, I think, on page 9, page 9. And if you're just joining us, the Gospel of Mark, the turning point, really, the hinge of the book is toward the end of chapter 8. When Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah, right? He's the Christ. He is the long-promised one of the Old Testament who is going to rescue and deliver God's people. And yet it's right at that point, the end of chapter 8, going into chapter 9, where Jesus is begin, he's going to begin now to teach what his Messiahship, what they just confessed, what does that mean for discipleship, for how the disciples are to live and follow him? Because what Jesus is going to be teaching them in these chapters, really 9 through chapter, through chapter 10, it's not what the disciples are going to expect. They fully expect Jesus to march toward Jerusalem. They fully expect Jesus to take a throne. What they don't realize, what they don't expect, is that Jesus is going to actually have to, to bear the cross before he can wear and bear that throne. And that's the calling of all who follow after him. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 8. And so for the last chapter, Jesus has been attempting to prepare them for the suffering that awaits and to encourage them and really provide a foretaste of what's going to wait them on the other side of that suffering. We had last week the Peter, James, and John. Jesus, remember, takes them up the mountain to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they receive a vision of the glorified Jesus alongside Moses and alongside Elijah. And yet while Peter, James, and John are up there on the mountain, right, they're having the camping experience, so to speak, of their lives. While they're up there, what's happening with the other nine disciples at the base of the mountain? So Jesus has been gone perhaps for a week with Peter, James, and John. What's been happening down at the base of the mountain with the other nine disciples? Well, let's read, picking up Mark 9, beginning of verse 14. And when they, referring to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, When they came to the disciples, they've come down the mountain. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, 
it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, the Italian artist, Raphael, in his last work, what many consider to be perhaps his greatest work, it was an unfinished work. And it's actually these two scenes in one painting, the Mount of Transfiguration and what's happening here at the valley below. And in the painting on the the top, you have light shining upon Christ, and you have Peter and James and John, and they're shielding themselves from the, the really from the the blinding brilliance of this light there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you have that on the one hand, and yet on the other, down below, what you have is gloom. And you have darkness as a boy's mouth is, is hideously contorted before disciples who obviously have no power over the demonic realm. So the juxtaposition in that painting of Raphael's, it's striking. Because on the one hand, what have you got on the top? You've got glory, you've got life, you've got a divine voice. And yet on the other, you've got darkness and death. And you've got the shrieks of a demon. So visions of grandeur and visions of failure. All captured in this one painting. And I think as... We think about and reflect on that painting and then even think even closer into our text. One of the recurring themes perhaps you picked up is this this theme of faith or belief or really the lack of faith and belief. So five different times we come across this idea. So in verse 19, what does Jesus do? Jesus laments. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And then in verse 23, addressing the boy's father, he's going to say, all things are possible for the one who believes. That word for belief there is the same for faith in verse 19. Then the father will cry out in verse 24, I believe, right, help my unbelief. And then lastly, verse 29, Jesus hints at the problem with the disciples and why they couldn't drive out the demon was that they didn't pray. That prayerlessness there reflects a kind of faithlessness on behalf of the disciples. And of course, what you've got then is you have this story bookended by the inability of the disciples to help the man. And in the center, you've got this man and his own struggle for faith. And yet as we step back, what do we have? But we've got in the broader context, you've got Jesus, again, in his radiant glory, descending from the mountain, right? The mountain of God's presence. That's what's just coming out of the previous section. Only as he comes down the mountain, he's confronted with a faithless and unbelieving generation at the foot of the mountain. So do you see again how Mark sets this up and how Mark is presenting what's happening here A clear parallel of what happened back in Exodus, back with Moses, back at Mount Sinai. Recall Moses on the mountain in the midst of God's glory, receiving God's law, only to come down the mountain, radiating that glory. And what does he find but faithless Israel at the foot of the mountain with the golden calf? The parallel between the two scenes is not by accident. You've got humanity's faithlessness contrasted with God's own faithfulness and with his own grace. And in that sense, this whole scene becomes really an object lesson on faith and discipleship. And this brings us, I think, to the central, really to the central theme of the passage. And that is that the poverty of our faith is met with the riches of Christ's grace. The poverty of our own faith is met with the riches of Christ's grace. So just as God didn't abandon his people, as Moses came down and saw them worshiping that golden calf, neither will God's own son abandon his people as he comes down and himself finds a faithless generation. And for our outline, we're really just going to take that summary sentence and break it into two halves. 
We're going to think about the poverty of our faith. We're going to think about the riches of Christ's grace. So let's start just thinking about the poverty of our faith. First, the poverty of our faith. So the scene opens. Jesus is coming down the mountain with the disciples only to be confronted with this cacophony of voices. Right? What in the world is going on? And yet, what we see at the center of it, the center of this mayhem, is the scribes engaged in this bitter verbal spat with the remaining nine disciples. And so Jesus asks, right, what's all the hubbub about? And here we learn that while Jesus was on the mountain, the disciples were trying to perform an exorcism. You know, one of the things that's interesting, if you read this account, is this account is more than double the length of the accounts in Luke's gospel or in Matthew's gospel. And there's lots of details that give you the impression that Mark was talking to an eyewitness. And we think most likely story from Peter, which would explain why there's no, there's no description of what happened that got us here, because of course Peter was on the mountain. So Peter comes down the mountain, and that's really when the, when the scene begins to take shape and when it begins to form, right? Peter wasn't there, but now they come down and now we're hearing what's happening. Someone steps up to the plate and tells Jesus, hey, this is what's been going on. And I love that simple line in verse 17. We just read, someone from the crowd answered him. Someone from the crowd. A no-named individual. It doesn't get much more nondescript than someone from a crowd. Just the kind of person that any normal celebrity, like Jesus clearly is, just the kind of person that would be overlooked. Most great people, if you haven't picked up, most great people like to hang around with other great people. They don't stop to listen to some no-name schmuck in the midst of a crowd. I know politicians will do that on the campaign trail when they know there's a video following them. Right? They'll do that. But by and large, that's not how humanity works. In real life, this is the kind of person that gets passed right over. But notice, not by Jesus. Not by Jesus. He doesn't silence the person. He doesn't say, hey, whoa, whoa, I got my nine disciples. I got scribes. I mean, the mayor of the town's even here. Let's hear from the mayor. He doesn't do that. He lets this no-name man speak. And he stops. And Jesus listens. Friend, I think if, you, if you're coming and you feel overlooked, if you regularly feel like the world takes absolutely no notice of you. Every day you feel like the world passes by and passes by you without a care, without even a glance. You need to know it's not that way with Jesus. It's not that way with him. This no-name man we're going to see, this no-name guy matters to Jesus. Friend, you too matter to Jesus. You can go to Jesus. You know, sadly, when I often come home from work, I'm often focused on the next thing I feel like I've got to do, the next thing I want to accomplish. Sometimes it's more work i got to do. Sometimes I just want to get a workout in. And it's often in those times I've come through the door and my wife's naturally thinking, you know, hey, this would be a good time to catch up on a few things. And so she starts in a conversation. And she doesn't get but a few sentences in, and she notices I'm shifting impatiently. Tapping my foot, perhaps. And just, no, my wife is not naturally a long-winded person. My wife's not one who, like, circles the tower a lot in a conversation, you know, buzzes it a couple times. My wife's actually, she gets to the point. Like, she lands the plane. But in my own impatience, oftentimes, what am I doing? I'm giving her that look like, are we almost done? Or even worse, what do I do? I finish her sentence. Yeah, some of you are chuckling because you know how well that goes. In every way I'm communicating, I really don't have time for this. Headlines, honey, just give me the headlines. That's what I got time for. Jesus is not like that. He's wonderfully not like that. Every time he'll put down what he's doing and he'll stop and he'll give you his undivided attention. He'll listen to you. He won't impatiently finish your sentences. 
He won't stop to look at his watch. He won't pick up his phone. He won't wonder what else is happening along in the world. He doesn't have someone better to spend time with or something better to do. He'll listen to you. He's there for you. He won't interrupt you. He won't grow impatient with you. If you will unburden your soul to him, he will in fact care for you. He's a glorious savior. I mean, there's no one like this Jesus. The problem is, we just don't seem to want to make the time to share with him, to tell him, to make the time for him. And ironically, though, like he's God. He is governing the galaxies. He is keeping planets on their axes. Like that is what Jesus is about. That's what God is about. Legitimately, if there is anyone who truly has more important things to do, it is Jesus. And yet, he listens. He can keep all those plates spinning and still give his undivided attention. So if you're a Christian in the room, before you run to talk to one of his followers, before maybe you pick up the phone to call a friend, before you think in the middle of a situation, you know, I gotta go seek the help of a professional. The question or not is whether or not you've actually done the most important thing. And have you taken the time and have you gone to him? Have you gone to him? He's there for you. He listens to you. He cares for you like nobody else can, but you first have to go to him. That's exactly what this man does. This father now unburdens his soul, lays it out, the tragic state of his son, and lays it out before Jesus. And we read there in verse 17 of just awfully how the boy is seized, his, right, his body goes rigid, his, his mouth foams, he grinds his teeth and all the rest. It has all the makings of right, a grandma seizure. And, and some of you with perhaps a medical background, you're like, yeah, I know what this is. This is epilepsy. But recognize this is actually not epilepsy in any normal, ordinary, clinical sense, if there's such a normal thing as epilepsy. I mean, behind this, it's clear in the text, behind this actually lays a demonic spirit. It would be a lot more accurate to say that this boy suffered from epileptic sort of like symptoms more than he actually suffered from epilepsy itself. And this is not just because they had some sort of ancient naivete about how disease worked. So the Bible doesn't, hear me clearly, the Bible doesn't assume there is a demon lack, uh, lurking behind every disease. That's not how the Bible approaches sickness. Mark's gospel has actually been very clear to distinguish between what's disease and what is demon possession, two very different things. So you think of the, the crippled man, you think of the leper back in chapter one, you think of the hemorrhaging woman in chapter five, you think of all the sick at Gennesaret in chapter six. They're sick. They suffer from illnesses. Nothing about demon possession, right? This is different. Something different is happening here. And the key is what the man says in verse 18. Look down there. Verse 18, halfway through the verse. The man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Do you see the focus on the inability of the disciples? Really, it should read, but they were not able, because that's to highlight the contrast of what the Father wants the disciples to do, but what they cannot do, what they're not able to do. Now, if you've come here this morning and you're one of those sort of Bible skeptics who think that this is nothing but a bunch of religious propaganda that was produced much later, right, to try and delude others, you know, a good, I think, question to ask as you come to a story like this, it's just to pause and say, all right, if you're going to invent a story in order to build a following, would you present it like this? Would you lay it out like this? Would you really cast Jesus' disciples over and over again in such an unfavorable light? Incompetent, unable, constantly confused. No, I think, again, stories like this just speak to the historicity, right? The veracity of this account. Right? This actually took place as it's being written down by Mark, probably coming from Peter's own mouth. 
But what I think is intriguing is, is this is actually the first time, and it's the only time in Mark's gospel, where the disciples are unable to cast out a demon. Which begs the question, why are they unable here? Because Jesus explicitly set them out back in chapter 3 to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Mark 3, 14 and 15. And then when he sends them out in chapter 6, he sends them out in twos. We read that they went out and that's exactly what they did. They cast out demons and they healed many sick people. So that marked their ministry. So it's not a great surprise that the disciples are trying to exercise this demon. Now we can have a much longer conversation about what that is and what does that mean for today and that's beyond the scope of this, sorry. But you can ask me later if you want. The question though is why now have they lost all their mojo? Like what's going on? Why can they not do it now? And I think the answer is in verse 19. Jesus responds, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And it sounds like Jesus is exasperated. And I think that's in part because he is exasperated with them. There's a part of Jesus that is grieved by this, right? Jesus has been with them now as disciples for three years. And he's been ministering around Israel for three years. So how long am I to be with you? Jesus knows it's not much longer. He's marching to Jerusalem. He knows the crucifixion awaits And the disciples, what's happening, we've already seen, they're bucking against this call of Jesus to bear their cross. They're arguing about the resurrection and what it means, and they're failing to grasp the great promises behind it, right? The rest of the disciples, they're at the bottom of the mountain. They're powerless in their own situation. You've got the scribes trying to have this theological debate with them. When the one who is the fulfillment of the law, which the scribes are to be experts in, the fulfillment of that law is standing right before them and they're rejecting them. They're rejecting this Jesus. And yet there are the crowds who keep coming back and they amass around Jesus and they seem to want more miracles. They want him to provide temporary fixes. They want him to wow them and to amaze them. It's what Herod is gonna ask of Jesus later in, in the book of Luke we see. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to order their life around him, especially their eternity around him. They want to be wowed and amazed by him. So Jesus has just descended the mountain only to be surrounded by the sea of unbelief so he can appreciate his cry of, oh, faithless generation. And that cry is again, It's reminiscent of what God said about faithless Israel. When Moses came down from the mountain, we read in Deuteronomy 32, uh, 20, for they are a perverse generation, God said about them, children in whom is no faithfulness. It echoes what Jesus said back in chapter 8, 38, when he spoke to that wicked and, or that sinful and adulterous generation, Mark 8, 38, So they had all the miracles, all the teaching, the time, the the, the future promises, all these things bound around Jesus. They had all of that. And yet in the midst of all that, they still struggled to believe, marked in fact by unbelief. Jesus is lamenting the poverty of their faith. And isn't it easy to point the finger and for us also to note the poverty of their faith? The friend cannot not be true of us. Can the same not be said of us and the poverty of our own faith? You know, I'm not just referring to evangelicalism at large. I mean, even here, right within our walls, here at UBC, we're often well-equipped as a church. We're often well-funded as a church. I pray we're often well-instructed too as a church. And yet, in part because of all that, is it possible that maybe we are powerless as a church because we've forgotten where our power comes from? Do we truly believe that God changes people? Do we believe that God, in fact, can heal the most hardened sinner? Do you share the gospel with that kind of faith and hope that that's what God's in the business of doing? 
Do we truly believe when we pray, when Stephen prayed in that pastoral prayer, did you believe that that prayer might actually change anything? Or were those just empty words to a God who is not concerned? Either didn't care, doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Does prayer supernaturally accomplish what no amount of human effort and ingenuity can accomplish? Is that in any way reflected in your own life, if it's true? Is that reflected in your own life? Friends, unbelief for the Christian, it's like kryptonite. It renders us powerless, worthless, ineffective for Christian work. Faith is what fuels the Christian, right? Not blind hope and trust. I mean, many in culture today, they hear that word faith, and they relegate faith all to sort of the inner person, to the private person. It's all about individual opinions and subjective realities. That's how many talk about faith. But faith in the Bible is actually based on a person and upon the event of the crucifixion and the resurrection, those two events. That's what Christian faith is built upon. Those are not subjective realities, those are objective realities. That's what our faith is in. And faith in that sense is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith, according to scripture, faith is to turn the lights on. It's to take the blinders off. It's actually to see Jesus and this world for what it really is. That's what biblical faith is about. The problem is that faithlessness, it seems to be just part of the human condition. And yet faith is what's in fact to lie at the heart of every Christian, right? The opposite reality. It's what we read earlier in the service, right? It's what Joe read from, from Hebrews chapter 11, that indeed without faith it is impossible to please God. At its core, faith is, is man in his deficiency trusting God in his ability. That's, I think at its core, that's basically what faith is. It's man in his deficiency trusting God in his own ability. Right, it's us in our weakness, trusting God in his greatness, that he can do what he promises to do. And it seems this was not just a problem for the crowds. It was a very problem that the disciples had as well. Because there we are at the end of the passage, right? And they go away, they go back into this private house, and they're left scratching their heads, and they're perplexed, and they look to Jesus, and they're like, we didn't really want to ask this question in front of everyone else, but hey, why couldn't we do this? Right, why couldn't we get this one? And Jesus responds, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, this kind might send some of you down to like demonology and all kinds of questions. And we could have also interesting conversations around that. I don't think that's the point, though. I think the point Jesus is making is he's actually giving an implicit indictment here of the disciples. So whereas the crowds are faulted for all of their faithlessness, the disciples were similarly faulted for their prayerlessness because prayerlessness is itself an expression of faithlessness. Perhaps the past success of the disciples had made them overconfident in their own abilities. You know, maybe after all those successes, they're walking with different swagger now. They're trusting in their abilities. They're like, yeah, God has given me the, Jesus has given me the ability to do this. Jesus is God, but just being clear, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, right, gave me the ability to do this. And now they think, okay, I've got this ability. I can go finish this task, and I can do this on my own and in my own strength. And friend, it's very easy to live the Christian life like that, to be tempted toward that kind of life. Right, we look to Christ to save us, and then we see to ourselves to get the rest of the way home. And one evidence of that is seen in your prayer life. It's seen in your prayer life. How's your faith? Jesus would say, let me ask you about your prayer life. Your prayer life will say everything. And friend, that is a haunting thing to reflect on. If I reflect on my last week, I might as well just get down and sit in the chair. Because what is prayer but faith turned to God? Prayer is, it's more than communion with God. It also expresses our dependence upon God. 
And it's more the communion with him. It expresses our dependence upon him. And when it comes to faith, all of these, the crowds, the disciples, they had all been weighed and found desperately wanting. Friend, what would Jesus say about your own faith? Well, what's pictured so gloriously, in fact, from our text is that despite the poverty of our own faith and wherever you may be, what, what little or perhaps no faith you feel like you possess, in the poverty, in the midst of that poverty, yet Christ meets us with the riches of his own grace. The riches of his grace. That's why I want us to think about sort of in the, the last bit of this message this morning. Let's think about the riches of Christ's grace. Because Jesus doesn't at this point, which he well could have done, doesn't say, you know what? I've been with you guys this long. If you haven't gotten it, I'm out. Figure this out on your own. And he doesn't do that. No, verse 19, what does he say? He says, bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. And at the mere sight of Jesus, notice the, the sight of Jesus throws this demon. The demon throws a fit. You know, it's interesting in the Gospels how Jesus' presence, his presence either throws demons into sort of a fawning submission, you can think back of Mark 5, or a kind of raging fury, actually closer to Mark 1 and Mark 5, the other, other way. Yeah, it's either sort of fawning submission, raging fury. It goes one way or the other. The demons all know who this Jesus is, and that's because darkness hates the light. When it's exposed, it hates it, it loathes it. And yet while this boy is foaming and all these others are no doubt scrambling, there's Jesus, it seems in the story, a bit nonplussed, almost asking for a kind of medical history. Right? He turns to dad, how long has this been going on? Now, I, I think you could read that kind of callously, but I don't think that's, that's what's here. No, it's compassion. Jesus here is, he knows what he's doing. He's drawing the father out. He's bringing the Father into a conversation. He's bringing the Father into the experience, and he's entering into that experience with them of what it's been like to try to care for the Son. And if you're a parent, do you not feel for this Father? Especially if you're a parent with a chronically ill child or a sick child, do you not feel for the despair of this parent who you know in a moment would trade places with this child? And yet they're unable. And we feel it especially because if you know Luke's account, this is his only child. Right? It's a deaf child. So the father can't even whisper in the child's ear. The child can't speak to what it needs. That's a horrific scene. And you feel with the dad utterly helpless. Nothing you can do. Which is why the father just blurts out in verse 22. But if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Friends, I think this exchange between Jesus and the father, it's one of the most poignant and powerful, I think, exchanges in all of scripture. No doubt, the man's faith had probably been badly shaken by the disciples' inability to do anything about this demon. And the scribes, right, they're not even clearly trying, it doesn't seem. They're just debating. No one is of any help to this father and the child. They're all arguing, and his son is suffering. And notice, he doesn't doubt Jesus' compassion. The father's actually got a question on Jesus' capability, right? He's actually not sure if Jesus can help him. So back in chapter one with the leper, the leper knew Jesus could help him. The question is, was he willing to? The father here actually has a question, is he able to? Not sure, but appealing to his willingness, his compassion. And friend, if you ever want to bend God's ear, appeal to his compassion. He is a compassionate God. If you can, Jesus replies. Now this isn't Jesus sort of bowing up, right, chest out, like this guy's just challenged him to a bar fight, right? That's not what Jesus is doing here in this moment. This if you can is Jesus, I think, putting a finger right on the hole of unbelief in that man's heart. He's putting his finger right on that hole of unbelief. And he's revealing 
and healing that wound. Jesus is saying, are we really going to talk about possibilities when it comes to God? It's why he responds, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, sadly, that verse, which is meant to be of such tremendous comfort, that verse is one of the most abused verses in all the Bible. And I wish it wasn't the case, but it sadly is the case. Friends, many prosperity preachers, many faith healers rip this verse out of context and make everything about whether or not the individual has enough faith. Right? God can do anything for you. God can do anything for you. Not only that, no. God has promised that he will do anything for you if you have enough faith. It's a bit what John Henderson was talking about this morning in that ABF. And they'll say, your ability to claim this promise is proportional, directly proportional to whether or not you have enough faith. So is someone sick in your home? Your faith can heal them. Struggling to provide financially, have faith, have enough faith, and God will meet you and even overabundantly bless you in that need. But friend, I need you to see that is the very definition of man-centered religion. That is making like God, like he's the sort of marionette, like we're the marionette, God's on the string, and we're just like playing him as we will. That's what that kind of religion turns into. And implicit in all of this is the, the assumption that if the blessings don't come, if the healing doesn't come, that must mean your faith is deficient. It must mean your faith failed, and tragically perhaps failed others along the way. And if it persists, It's you, right? You haven't mustered up enough faith. Dig deeper. Try harder. That's what they'll teach. Friends, that is not at all what Jesus is teaching here. It's not that with enough faith, you can do anything. That's not his point. Rather, it's this God has the power to do anything. It's not about the quantity of our own faith. It's very much about the quality of our God, right? Who is he? It's what's highlighted a little bit later, the next chapter, Mark 10, 27, when Jesus is going to look at the crowds and say, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Right? So we're free to ask what we will. So far, is it accompanies God's will? That's exactly the point Jesus makes, right? This is where we have to put Scripture together. We can't just rip a verse out and make it say what we want it to say. Put Scripture together. Mark 14, 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You hear the same connection. All things are possible. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Right, or think of Paul's thorn. We read there from Paul, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Right? Not just once, not just twice, Paul says, but three times. He pleaded. These are not half-hearted prayers. These are guttural, like Paul, prostrate, face on the floor kind of prayers. Are we to assume that the fact that God didn't answer that prayer, that Paul lacked sufficient faith, that he didn't believe deeply enough, Well, no, it had nothing to do with Paul's lack of faith. It had everything to do with God's purposes in his life. That he wanted, God did, to make his power known in Paul's weakness. So none of us should take a verse like this as a justification to put God to the test through a bunch of presumptuous prayers, right? We don't want to do that. And yet at the slightest hint, at the slightest hint that Jesus might help the man, The father cries out, right, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. This is one of the most honest, transparent cries in all of the Bible. Beautiful for its, its honesty and for its simplicity. Right, There is no pretension in this prayer. This is just a man raw and in desperate need crying out to God. 
It's very much like the tax collector, right, with the Pharisee. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very much a similar prayer. He recognizes his weakness. He sees God in his greatness. He's just pleading for the slightest sliver of grace and mercy in his life. Like so many of us, right, this man is sort of operating in this shadowy world of half-belief. Right, he's caught in the middle of faith and doubt, and he's wrestling all at the same time. And so his cry is a mixture of faith and despair. And what does Jesus do with this prayer? Does Jesus say, oh yeah, you know what, that's not good enough. Yeah, that's not enough. Come on, you can do better than that. Come on, you can believe better than that. You can pray better than that. You can at least throw some Bible verses in there or something. Is that how Jesus responds to the man, right? No, go away and come back, and when you can get it right, I'll listen to you. No, that's not his response at all. No, the poverty of the man's faith is yet met right here with the riches of Christ's own grace. He honors that mustard seed of faith. Right? No matter how small, no matter how inadequate your faith may appear, Jesus doesn't return it. He'll take it. He'll work with it. This man is willing to risk whatever little faith he has, and Jesus rewards it. Now listen, maybe you've come this morning and you don't identify as a Christian. You need mercy. You need the mercy of this God. You need to cry out for the mercy of this God. And you may feel a little bit like John Newton, like, yeah, this God, there's too much in my life for for him to have to overlook. Well, he won't overlook it. He never overlooks sin. That's one of the wonderful and yet horrifying things about God, is he's a just God. He doesn't overlook sin, doesn't ignore it. He's a good God, and that he doesn't ignore it, which is terrifying news for us, because every one of us have sinned against him. Every one of us, large and small alike, we need his mercy. And the promise of the gospel is that when we cry out for it, however weak we cry out, Christ meets us in that need. Because Jesus alone died on the cross for sinners to dispense mercy to sinners. And he rose from the grave as proof that his death, which was a payment for sin, that God had accepted that sacrifice. And so when he dispenses mercy, he dispenses it graciously and willingly. So when we cry out, we can know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe, help my unbelief. Or earlier with Jerry's, do not fear, only believe. Right, whatever that prayer, whatever the form takes, Jesus, he hears it, he receives it, and he grants faith. He brings us into his family, right? We repent, we believe, we cry out. That's the hope of the gospel. If you've come and you're not a believer, that's what Christ calls you to do, to cry out in faith like this man and watch him meet you. But you know, that's not just what non-Christians are called to do. Christians, right, we have to cry out just like this. Friend, when was the last time, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you cried out like this? I believe, help my unbelief. Right, help that unbelief. Because we can suppose that in the Christian life, like some of us think the early years are the really steep and hard years. And then it's gonna level out and get better. And I don't mean to discourage you if you're under that illusion, but that's actually not how it works. Like the early years are kind of the easier years And you know what, as the years mount, and as God and his grace sanctifies and shows himself faithful, that path, that trail up the mountain tends to get steeper and rockier and narrower, and the views are worth it, but it actually gets a little bit harder in some ways. And we still find ourselves at risk of slipping into despair and to discouragement, and we too have to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. That prayer never goes away. You want to get God's attention. You want to throw him a softball. He's going to knock out of the park every time. Pray that prayer with the heart that actually means it. And watch God work.
Watch him work in your own life. God takes the flimsiest of prayers and he transforms them into supernatural faith. He works through them. This boy is violently delivered from that evil spirit. So much so that he appeared, notice, like a corpse. No doubt the scribes are probably muttering to themselves, maybe even chuckling. Yeah, he healed them all right. Yeah, he killed them. But in verse 27, Jesus takes him by the hand and he rises. And that language is resurrection language. That's the language Jesus uses to talk about his own resurrection so remember, Jesus promised back in 9-1 the kingdom of God would come with power, and they got a foretaste of that power up there on the mountain. Now they're getting an object lesson down at the base of the mountain on that kind of power. Despite the poverty of their faith, Christ has met them with the riches of his grace. Friend, that's what John Newton couldn't quite bring himself to believe, that Christ would meet him in that state. So there at the helm of that sinking ship, when he saw his life for what it was, a ship being torn to pieces by a ravaging storm, in his own life he knows that's self-imposed sin, ruining his own life. He didn't think he was even worthy to pray, mercy, mercy, what mercy can there be even for me? But for the first time in a decade, he found himself whispering that prayer. Mercy, mercy. Can there be mercy even for me? Surrounded by darkness, in despair, uttered by right, half-disbelieving lips, depth of mercy, he cried. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? And in the poverty of that faith, Christ met John Newton with the riches of his grace. The great blasphemer, as he was known to all of his crew, the slave trader, which tragically was what he had become, would go on to become one of the most beloved and powerful forces for Christ. Not only did this John Newton go on and work to abolish the slave trade, not only did he go on to write many wonderful hymns, he went on and pastored for nearly 30 years. That's his story of how a man who was a great sinner encountered a great Savior and in the poverty of his own faith was met with the riches of Christ's grace. Friend, what will your story be? What will your story be? Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise that as we come to texts like this and we stop and reflect on them, we see there's so much more happening than a boy being healed or being given a window into your character, into the nature of faith, into our need for faith, into you and the kind of God you are who provides graciously such faith to his people. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.